Hello, and welcome back to the Film Brain Podcast. This wasn't intended to be a bad movie podcast, but it just seems that way from my first two episodes. Unfortunately, because of the January sort of dry spell of just dumping movies, the only really interesting film that's out at the moment is Glass. And I watched it, and I've got to be honest, I really, really didn't like it. But... I wasn't the only one who saw Glass. I do have some guests on the show today. First up, you'll know him from his music reviews, but he does have quite a few film opinions as well, especially when it comes to talking chipmunks. It's Ton the Shadows. Hi, I have opinions. Not good ones, but I got them. And I'm ready to share them, so uh, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> no problem. And from Sci-Fi Wire, Danny Roth. Oh, no. Hi, Dan. Oh, Hello. Todd, my, uh, I, wait, we do a podcast together too. Yes, we do. Yep. Sometimes my podcast and sometimes your podcast. We podcast together a lot. Yay. Yay. What a life. And we both, <laughs> and we saw this movie together, Glass. And we, uh, both shared, uh, many unpleasant expressions during it. We did. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny that you said this at the beginning, Matt, that you were like, some other people saw it too. Some other people, it's probably going to make $50 million in its domestic opening here in the States. So a lot of people went to see this movie, this very low budget movie. Even for us, because we saw it Thursday night, it was kind of packed. Oh yeah, my screen was packed on a Thursday night, although I should note that I actually saw it as a secret card holder screening, because I've got a Cineworld Unlimited card, so it was technically members only, but it was a pretty packed screening on that Thursday night. It's weird how low budget this movie is. I don't understand why M. Night didn't put more money into this movie, knowing that it would get such a big opening weekend. There was hype for this movie. Oh, that yeah, that's all going into his pocket. Like In a way, it was weirdly <laughs> wise. I mean, we'll get to this maybe a little bit more later, but chew over this question. If he had put more money into it, how much better would this movie have been? <laughs> it would feel a little bit bit more competent in my opinion <laughs> there's a lot of corner cutting here you know they might actually make a film where things actually happen for the majority of the running time maybe i mean you you say that but i don't know i kind of feel like this was the movie he planned to make <laughs> that's a that's a theory mm. and i could be wrong all right, so just to give the audience a plot synopsis in case they didn't see this movie, or in the case of this film, several previous movies. 19 years ago, David Dunn from Unbreakable, played by Bruce Willis, was the unscathed sole survivor of the East Rail 177 crash. And it turns out that he has super strength and invincibility. He is now a vigilante known as the Overseer, and he is tracking Kevin Wendell Crumb from Split, played once again by by James McAvoy, who has Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DIED, and the most ferocious of those personalities is the Beast. Unfortunately, they both end up getting captured, and now, under Dr. Ellie Staple, played by Sarah Paulson, they find themselves being locked in a psychiatric institution alongside Elijah Price, a.k.a. Mr. Glass from Unbreakable, played by Samuel L. Jackson. She specializes in people that believe that they're superheroes, and she has three days to cure them of their grand delusion. So, the story of Glass is pretty much the story of M. Night Shyamalan's career. It's pretty much the culmination of a lot of his work leading up to this. I mean, this year is the 20-year anniversary of his 
big movie, The Sixth Sense, that really put him on the map in a lot of people's eyes. I mean, I know he did the writing work on Stuart Little, but no one really noticed that. I did not know that. He did. He does have a credit on Stuart Little, of all things. But uh, Unbreakable was very much his follow-up in 2000. It did fairly well, but it wasn't a huge success. And I think that was one of the reasons why M. Night didn't go back to that particular movie for many years. Apparently, Samuel L. Jackson was very much buggy and going, okay, when are we going to do another one? But I actually want to say that I hadn't actually seen Unbreakable until the afternoon before I went and saw Glass. I actually watched it for the very first time, which, uh, it didn't help. Uh, what are your opinions on Unbreakable? Oh, Unbreakable's great. It's my favorite of his movies, actually. Yeah, and I, do, I, I remember it not being quite as big as The Sixth Sense, but I remember that everyone who went to it seemed to like it. I mean, I, I remember a few dissenters, but everyone came away thinking, like, man, this Shyamalan guy, that he's not just a fluke. This guy is the real deal. Yeah, I was really impressed by Unbreakable, actually. As someone who has seen more of Shyamalan's later work, I think the first time I saw one of his movies was Signs in cinemas. I, of course, did a video review about The Happening and so forth, but seeing Shyamalan after the peak as it were, it kind of gave a very weird impression of him that when you go back to watching Unbreakable, you finally understand, oh, this is what people saw in him, especially with the way that it plays around with its central theme of taking comic books and placing them in a very realistic reality and very much kind of treating it with ambiguity. There's that scene where we first properly meet Elijah, where he gets the comic book as a kid and then it moves into him in his art gallery where he's got the original artwork for that front cover and he's talking about how more detailed it is, how more realistic it is and I think that that scene sets up a lot of what M. Night is trying to do with that movie and at the time that was a bit of a just daring thing to do when you consider that comic book movies were very much out of vogue at that particular point of time. I mean, this is post-Batman and Robin. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I always, I look at Unbreakable and think of it as uh, he deconstructed the modern superhero movie before Before it it happened. Yeah. For a long time, I thought it made him a genius. Now I kind of wonder if it was a fluke. Yeah, even many years later, you still kind of wonder, was that luck or is he just really on the ball? It does feel extremely prescient even today, but especially at that point in time, and it wasn't sold as a superhero movie. It wasn't at all. No, it's a mystery movie of some kind. Yeah. It's like, this guy survived an accident completely unaccounted for. How is that possibly occurring? Is there something really kind of supernatural there? That was very much the emphasis of the marketing for that movie, and apparently M. Night was not happy about that. Apparently he wanted Disney to sell that more of a superhero movie, and I I don't know how you would do that. Yeah, I also don't know that that would have been a boon to it as far as the box office is concerned. I think, yeah, people would be disappointed by that. Yeah, Yeah, frankly, uh, it had Unbreakable come out maybe two years later, it would have been a different story. Then you could have marketed it as a superhero thing. Once you've got X-Men out the door and Spider-Man out the door, it's a very different sort of conversation. But yeah, at the time, I don't know that there is any way that they could have marketed it that would have caused it to make more than the $250 million that it did make. I think X-Men was out at that time, so the ball was just getting rolling on the Mon superhero movie as we know it today, but that was only a couple of months beforehand, and X-Men wasn't big big when that first came out. I mean, no, well. X-Men didn't hit until X2, and it was sort of the same thing with Spider-Man. Spider-Man 2 was the one that really sort of planted the flag in 
saying, yes, this is going to be the genre for a little while. It's funny because I, at the time, I thought X-Men was the biggest thing in the universe. It, it ruled my life. Thinking about it now, it was like it's just basically a blip, like doesn't dominate the conversation the way superhero movies do now. But yeah, Unbreakable was like a more mainstream version of the comic book movie. Like you can imagine like normal people going to see it and not, you know, losers like us. And Bruce Willis is really good in that movie. He is. He is fantastic. I would say that's one of his best performances, while at the same time saying that maybe his work with Shyamalan might have been the start of Bruce Willis as we know him now. His performance in that movie is really dialed back. I mean, the obvious central metaphor, and it is a film that is just a whole host of allegories, is simply that he is this kind of impervious, impenetrable man, not only both physically, but also emotionally. He's very closed off. His marriage is going through problems, and so you've got that sort of reverberating both in terms of the actual plots, but also in terms of his characterization. It's a very measured performance from Willis that even as someone who has watched a lot of Bruce Willis films, it's still not something that you would typically associate with them. It feels like a total 180 from something like Hudson Hawk or <laughs> Dear Life. Yeah, he used to be a really bad overactor. <laughs> he really genuinely did. Yeah, now that you say it out loud, I can't help but think, huh, Marriage on the Rocks goes for a trip someplace else, and then things happen. It's the plot of Die Hard. (laughs) (laughs) Glass? Who gives a shit about glass? (laughs) Shoot the glass. But yeah, I I think the work with Shyamalan proved to Willis that he could actually underplay, and then he used that for the rest of his career afterwards. Unfortunately, and now yeah, he just... well, he's that's not underplaying. He just stopped caring. He is so bored with making movies, like, and he was still trying in two thousand and somewhere I want to say around two thousand seven ish to twenty ten, somewhere in there, he gave up entirely. I think there is some, there's like a little passageway from where he just went from underplaying to just not giving a shit, not giving a damn. What really didn't help my impressions of this movie, I will admit, is viewing it in such close proximity to Unbreakable, which admittedly is kind of the outlier in this trilogy as it is now. It was made for quite a large budget. It was made for $75 million. It looks like a big expensive movie, even if it's not got loads of action sequences in it. A lot of it is shot in these really extended long takes, just having the camera often just sit there and observe the characters, which gave it again a sense of reality, but also apparently was meant to invoke comic book panels. I'm not sure how much that really works, I don't know if I would associate that with comic book panels, but again, it just grounded the movie, and I really found myself wondering through Glass whether M. Night really remembers that movie very well or why it worked or the fact that, you know, he was relying on metaphor. Well, we we, we talk about Bruce Willis getting lazy, but Shyamalan became very arrogantly lazy. Yes. He expects to, you know, do the bare minimum and you still smell his shit and think that smells great. That also took a turn right around the middle of the 2000s. Oh, yeah. Apparently, uh, Split came from an idea that he had for Unbreakable, and that's why the two movies are tied together so closely. And I think I can spot exactly where that idea came from. When you watch Unbreakable, there's that climax where he follows the orange 
Superman, the maintenance man. And of course, he's got this family held hostage. That that was originally Kevin Wendell Crumb, or what eventually would become that character. Knight has said as much. He has, he has said that that was sort of the original intention, but then he felt that that character was too complex to fit within the narrative of what he was trying to tell in Unbreakable. So he reduced it down to a, a much more diluted basic character. And he was right to do that because it's about the last 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's way too much. I do understand Shyamalan's instinct that a hero needs a villain. The orange maintenance suit guy is like a, a warm-up villain, a training villain. Yes. The, the character in Split, the, the horde, the beast, whatever, That's it's, it is very complicated. You can't jam that in the last few seconds of a movie. Oh, no, no, you can't. So I, I think it was wise that he sound like there for a while, but of course, Shyamalan, when he made Unbreakable, and Shyamalan, when he made Split, are two very different things, because Shyamalan, in between times, as you mentioned, Todd, he kind of just fristed away a lot of the critical praise that he'd accumulated with the first two films gradually over time. I mean, the critics, when they were reviewing those early movies, were talking about, oh, he's the next Hitchcock, you know, he builds these suspenseful thrillers based around big twists, and I think that Shyamalan really started to believe that hype. Um, I don't know if, if people know this, but uh, do you remember he was he sort of had like his little like offshoot? He was going to hire a bunch of creators to sort of do movies based on his ideas. Yes, I and do then, remember. And this. then and then he put out a movie called Devil. Yes, The Night Chronicles. Yeah. That movie- Devil opens rather hilariously with a production company logo that transitions into the number one, and it turns out it was the only one. <laughs> yes, so guess what number two was going to be? Split. So the, yes, he was going to have somebody else do Split right after Devil. He has been trying, I mean, in, to, to his, I mean, I don't know if it's to his credit or not, but just for the sake of posterity and of knowing it, uh, he has been trying to sort of get this stuff off the ground uh, for a while. I, th- I think the, the part of the reason why he struggled was a cause that, he, that he'd kind of ruined himself as a commodity because of the fact that he kind of turned himself into a bit of a laughing stock, especially after the happening. It seemed like he was really kind of struggling to keep his name in the Hollywood mainstream, and then he sort of got into financing his projects by himself, and that's where the current sort of renaissance period, I guess you would call it, of Shyamalan is, and then along comes Split. Um, you know, people make fun of the happening, but the Shyamalanaissance are all kind of like the happening. They're mean, nasty jokes of movies, like dark comedies, yeah. almost. Now, I didn't rewatch Split for this, but I didn't see Split in cinemas. I saw Split for the first time maybe six months ago or so. Uh, I caught up with it on DVD. So I knew about the Unbreakable twist, but I ha- obviously I hadn't seen Unbreakable, so I didn't really have any measure to compare it with something like that. Even if I'd known that, I wouldn't have necessarily put the two and two together because they're two very radically different movies. I know that Split caused a lot of controversy when it came out. You know, it uses mental health as a sort of boogeyman in the form of its DID antagonist, essentially. I understand where they're coming from there. I'm not sure I agree because like it's so obviously fictional and they acknowledge that up front. I think DID is actually a real thing. I did actually have a look up, and in a lot of ways the movie is kind of faithful to that, but it kind of takes that and goes several steps beyond it by inventing the Beast <laughs> character, where he literally gets superpowers from his DID, and you go, oh, that's a stretch. I think that was the reason why I didn't see that in cinemas, is because I saw that part in the trailer and went, okay, I'm out of this. <laughs> oh, I don't I don't remember if I saw um, a trailer that included that or, or what. 
I saw a screening of it with a bunch of critics before it came out. And so I think I had basically the opposite experience from you, which is I had seen Unbreakable many times. I was a big fan of it. And I had no idea I was watching it. Uh, I got to the end of the movie when Bruce Willis is Mr. Glass. And I was, I'm still to this day very embarrassed about it because all these stoic critics were very quiet. And so I was the only one in the audience that went, get the fuck out <laughs> like i didn't even hold back i was so and i thought for sure like what people, what people would gasp or clap or something but i was the only one and i still i mean that's all i remember about split like i'm aware of the other things that happened like i think i have a basic sense of the beats but all i remember about it was mr glass i was like get really it just it really <laughs> stood out to me and then i was excited for a time and then everything else happened. I don't know if I was like impressed. Oh, I was impressed in one way. I was like, that that took some balls. Like it was the greatest Shyamalan twist of all time because it changed the genre of the movie. <laughs> It really did. The way that I feel about Split is that it's a little bit of a strange movie, again, like The Visit, but it works mostly because of that sort of tightrope walk acting performance that James McAvoy is doing, which I think is really compelling as just a performance piece. You've got so many different characters and he's shifting between them. He does that remarkably well. And I also think that Anya Taylor-Joy, as the protagonist of that movie, I think that she does a very good job of making you sympathise with that character. And so I think that they very much carry a lot of that movie as you would probably expect from something that is so self-contained in comparison that was only a nine million dollar budget movie but it felt very kind of claustrophobic and atmospheric in a lot of ways the way that i feel about the ending tag i can understand why people got hyped for it but at the same time it doesn't change anything about the movie plot wise to that point it's more setting up the sort of promise of oh we're coming back to this we're not done yet turns out you've been watching a side sequel and you hadn't even own it. Although, honestly, again, Split is such a radically different movie to Unbreakable. It's almost like a trashy exploitation movie in a lot of ways. And it rolls with it. I mean, I kind of enjoyed it on that level. But it's not as strong as Unbreakable. Again, I would probably feel differently going into Glass if I'd seen Split before it than Unbreakable. You say that, I would point out that our own Dan Olson had just seen Split when hated both. Yes. I think in equal measure, so, I mean, yeah. you never know. Yeah. I thought Split was okay. I think it kind of peters out at the end, and uh, I guess it held my interest, but I wasn't, like, super impressed with it. I don't know, like, Shyamalan, the new Shyamalan, has a very uh, dark tone to him. He just genuinely seems angry at people. <laughs> so that brings us to Glass... The problem with this movie, I feel, is that it's self-contained to a fault. It's very peculiar. I mean, I know that Shyamalan, he likes to finance his movies by himself now. He raises the money entirely by himself. He's totally in control. And apparently, um, Universal and Disney, who share the rights to this movie, Universal released it in the US, Disney are releasing it internationally. They did offer to put up some money for this, and Shyamalan told them no, and I'm guessing that that was because he just didn't want to see control because goodness knows M. Night Shyamalan being in control of things that's never a recipe for disaster oh. you know I have a theory about this era of his films Todd and I talked about this when we were on the way out of the theater when you make something when you make a, a video and put it out I don't want to say that you don't examine it in any way but don't you kind of put it in the rearview mirror and go I don't want to think about that anymore I want to move on to the next thing yes uh, absolutely there is one person that is guaranteed to like an M. Night Shyamalan movie and that is M. Night Shyamalan Yes. <laughs> I think he loves his own films. Uh, Todd, you call it, he really likes the smell of his own farts. Um, 
But I, that's the vibe that I get off of these last couple of films. He has complete control over them, and he is so pleased. He really thinks he's done something. Oh, absolutely. That is the number one impression I get off of Glass. You get to the end of that third act, and you think, he really thought he did it. You can genuinely see that all the way through the movie. I feel that Shyamalan has a huge confidence in his work that sometimes can be misplaced. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, the euphemisms here. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I think that in a strange way, Mr. Glass is kind of his resonor, the person that's sort of speaking on behalf of what the author kind of thinks of things, the uh, authorial yeah. intent. Yes, I would actually agree with that. I would agree with that a lot. Especially the idea of Glass being a mastermind. Oh. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes. We you, can you... we can dive into this, I think. We can really dive into this. While we're on the subject of Mr. Glass. <sighs> Let's talk about comic book movies and where they are now. Comic book movies are in a very different place in 2019. They are pretty much the big mainstream properties these days. And Glass, I get the impression that M. Night Shyamalan still thinks that they're a niche thing that people don't know the rhythms of. All throughout this movie, Samuel L. Jackson is talking in hushed whispers about such illuminating things like the cast of characters the big showdown uh, like congratulations you've described a narrative okay well one Mr. Glass obviously haven't seen any of the new comic book movies which if I think about it like that makes sense he's been in jail but I think M. Night Shyamalan has not seen them either no like he has not seen a single one of them and doesn't realize that they are that big and I also don't think he likes comic books very much I got the feeling that he only knows like the bare minimum and he doesn't really read them or like them yeah yeah, he definitely has never worked in a comic book store before, because <laughs> what sort of comic book store owner would separate their comic books by heroes and villains? I had a moment where that it was set up like that, and I thought of Ghostbusters when they're in the library at the beginning, and Bill Murray goes, you're right, no human being would stack books this way. <laughs> Well, I like if it's like a display, like a separate display, that'd be one thing. But it's like a big neon sign over a section. It's just weird. It is really the word that you constantly use throughout the film. Todd was inept. Yeah, it would be an inept way to set up a comic <laughs> book store. That's for sure. I would be out of business. Mr. Glass talks about like limited editions and origin stories, and like this is the limited edition, or this is the origin. This comic's story. gonna put your kid through college, and it didn't really fit. <laughs> into the plot like the plot didn't match what he was saying at all no no not really and shouldn't he be talking about crossover events this is what <laughs> yeah, this movie much. is essentially yeah absolutely that would make more sense in context it was symptomatic to me of a lot of problems that I had with this movie especially with regards to the elements from Unbreakable it flanderizes <laughs> both of those characters and one of the ways is that the thing where Glass in Unbreakable was talking about comic book tropes as being analogous to real life. He takes that idea in this follow-up and basically just runs it into the ground and it, like you said, Danny, at a certain point, it starts to just become a very obvious mouthpiece for M. Night Shyamalan to talk about how impressed he is with his own writing. Yeah, although wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit a very uh, H-bomber guy perspective, which is that he meant to make this movie bad because you see the plot of the movie is <laughs> that when you get to the end of it, the 
they've passed the torch down, these guys are going to take over the role of who our main three guys are. And, you know, when they've done that in real life with comic books, you know, when they replace Superman, replace Batman, when they replace Captain America, people invariably hate it. And then they have to bring them back. So maybe it's, <laughs> there you go. I've, I've cracked the case. Actually, now I've changed my mind. Glass is good because it was bad on purpose. Brilliant. I'm sure that someone will come up with that defense in the comments. Cracked it. You, you said they, they exaggerate the characters and yet, like, we get to see, like, all 35 of the Horde's personalities. Almost. They cut some of them out uh, in the edit, apparently, according to James McAvoy. He did all of the ones for the movie, every single one they'd written, and then I think they cut two or three out from the running time. Also, David Dunn, Bruce Willis as David Dunn, they exaggerate him too, even though, like, Bruce Willis doesn't exaggerate anymore. <laughs> As I recall from Unbreakable, his thing with water is that he reacted to it like a normal person. Yes. He could get it into his lungs and die. He could drown like a normal person. Here, it actively destroys him. Like he's the Wicked Witch of the West. Like oh, yes, yes. I wanted to talk about this because this is the element of the movie I found so funny. I was saying earlier that M. Night seems to miss the point of his own movie. This is where he most clearly does it. The idea of Unbreakable, a lot of that movie is meant to be ambiguous over whether or or not he actually has powers at all and in that movie there's a moment where Elijah calls him up and says I think I've got it figured water is your kryptonite and it's referring to the fact he died as a child he drowned at the bottom of a swimming pool and in case you forgot about that they do remind you of that in this movie the thing is when he confronts that at the end of that particular movie it's him literally having to recreate that scenario he gets thrown on a pool cover and he gets sucked into the pool and he gets rescued. That's a typical scenario that any human would be in trouble in. That's not because water makes him weak and vulnerable. And yet, in Glass, they treat it like Elijah's statement is completely accurate. If he's in water, he's completely useless. Like he can't stand. Like he becomes weak as a baby. To borrow a joke from Phalus, he's soaking wet. He's totally useless now. I would like to draw a comparison. You remember... American Psycho. Yes. You get to the end of that movie. The question is, did Patrick Bateman kill all those people or not? It's ambiguous. And then American Psycho 2 comes out and it's like, yep, <laughs> he sure did. It's exactly like that, except, you know, with the same writer-director at the helm. Yeah. It's very puzzling, and yet we have it constantly all throughout this movie. I mean, they even set up a giant water tank specifically for him. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> this is very peculiar. Yeah, his cell is, like, filled with hoses. Like, when he gets out of line, they can hose down. I mean, I guess I could kind of go with this if it was a better movie. <sighs> How does David Dunn take a shower? I just, you know... Yeah, what exactly. would he do when it rains? Like, <laughs> That's why he wears the rain poncho, you know? That's why, that's why, yeah. Oh my god, he's a never-nude. You've really cra you've, you've cracked it. This is an Arrested <laughs> Development situation. Yeah, apparently he just doesn't take showers. He just... Ugh. Yeah, when, when Sarah Paulson is trying to convince him that it's all in his head, that he doesn't really have powers, it starts to become kind of plausible because... He He's, like, gotten so exaggerated. It kind of sounds like a crazy person. Like, oh, water's my weakness. The water thing is meant to be psychological <laughs> because he died as a child. <laughs> you know, it's like, M. Night, did you rewatch your own movie? Did you understand it? Oh, and then the movie culminates this with his death scene. Oh, yeah, spoilers, he dies. Well, everybody dies, spoilers. <laughs> All three characters die. But I think this was the most insulting was the drowning in a By puddle. puddle. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pothole full of water. 
And they just shove his head. Yeah. Yeah. I said this uh, to you on Facebook, Matthew, which is, um, we were like, it's an origin story for the puddle. (laughs) And I replied, it's an origin story for me hating this piece of shit. (laughs) Because it's such a cruel, small way of stepping all over that character in his death scene. I mean, I felt really insulted on Unbreakable's behalf. Yeah. Because it's not like he's had a load of huge, triumphant, heroic moments. And then basically he gets this ridiculous death scene. Just so insulting. What a punk way to go out. Yeah. Yeah. The reason that he's so weak is because he'd been fighting in the water tank and it bursts and it fills the pothole. It's stupid. Water should not physically make him weaker. That is preposterous. He's not one of the aliens from Signs. (laughs) Oh, right. Him and water. Him and water. It's a weirdly deep thing in M. Night's movies. It leaves me with a deep debate in my mind whether things would have been better or worse if before this movie came out we had ever actually gotten an Unbreakable 2. Would that have helped? Would he have understood his own rules? It's like you said when I was saying the American Psycho analogy. It's so weird because he made the first one. M. Night Shyamalan clearly loves Unbreakable, but he didn't understand it at all, except he made Unbreakable! So (laughs) how is that possible? It's it's so bewildering. And even the tone of this movie feels nothing like Unbreakable, you would think that, oh, it's a crossover movie, we'll try and make it fit both movies. And aesthetically, it doesn't. It brings back a lot of things from Unbreakable. It brings back David Dunn's son, same actor, uh, Spencer Treat Clark, returns for this movie. Yeah, has he kept up as an actor, or are they just bringing him back for this one movie? I think he has been, but he hasn't really done a lot since that film and they even bring back uh, Elijah's mother played by uh, Charlene Woodard oh jeez I think it's kind of hilarious that they brought her back because A she's younger than Sam Jackson yeah she's five years younger than Samuel L. Jackson yeah that just slapped some real old age makeup on her yeah you could really tell it looked awful. It's so weird, and I don't know why they brought that character back at all. She does nothing in the movie. Why even have her in there? That's a character that you could plausibly say, oh, she died between movies. You could easily get away with saying that. Samuel L. Jackson is getting up there. He's past retirement age. He's 70. This woman, whoever she is, has got to be like... 90? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the youngest. I mean, granted, I get that Jackson, you know, he's playing younger a lot of the time, so let's be generous. Let's maybe say he's 50, 60, but that'd still put her up there. They still could have easily written her out like they did David Dunn's wife, played by Robin Wright in the first movie, and she doesn't obviously return for this, but they do have one shot of the world's worst body double for a very (laughs) brief flashback. Well, I think they wanted to make it even. All three main characters have a supporting character, Mm. but she was so obviously the most forced you barely remember her from Unbreakable no she's not really in that movie for very much and And she's also not she doesn't do anything in this movie she observes his death scene at the end that's the only reason that she's there I guess it's important for balance I guess but like Glass didn't have that character he was just himself Mm. and they're elevating this tiny supporting character because he's got nobody else but like he's a horrible horrible man yeah you know his mom should cut her losses, I think. He did murder 
quite a lot of people. Yeah, it's, like, it's up in the three digits, right? <laughs> yeah, it's well past that. It's at least probably in the range of probably about 500 or so people at the very least. Do, do they ever really say how many officially uh, crashes there are in his attempt? Because it's not like that train crash was the first one. He'd been doing it for a while. It was at the very least three. He it was did, like a hotel fire. I forget the other hotel one. fire, plane crash. Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of people have died. Yeah. How do you crash a plane? That's a great question. Well, you see, he's a mastermind. Yes. So <laughs> this is the, this is the other thing where they kind of take that one element of the character and then sort of exaggerate it to such ridiculous extremes. I mean, yeah, he's a really clever, smart guy. He's intuitive, and that was how he managed to do those things. You see, the flashback at the end of Unbreakable, he's literally just in the bar, and he just by happenstance hears someone talking about the maintenance on the hotel. Oh, it, it's all old, dangerous. Yeah, it's not like he Machiavellianly planned everything like that and yet in this movie they mention how oh we got to keep him sedated and we got to keep him away from plans for the building because he tried to escape and it just sort of goes well he's so hyper observant and then he escapes because he's memorized everything I could I could sort of buy that but then it gets to such an extent where he knows exactly to the minute when the shift change is going to happen and the guard is just chatting at the door because apparently he does that every single day yeah yeah, that's a, that's good luck right there. Yeah. Maybe he had to go to the bathroom that day and he... <laughs> <laughs> Just a lot of leaps of logic. There's a lot of things in this movie that I would describe as being sloppy and careless. There's a lot of, wait, what? Logic moments? <laughs> <laughs> There's a moment where they're trying to escape out of the institution fairly late in the film, Kevin and Elijah, and they're literally just dressed up in scrubs. <laughs> and somehow the guards just let them out the door? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Elijah doesn't even have scrubs on. He has a blanket, and underneath the blanket is his purple suit with the MG on his ascot. Get the hell out of here with that. Come on. It's so bad. It's so past the point of credibility, which is, again, why this movie feels so alien when you watch it after Unbreakable, is that it feels like it's not even in the same reality. Even things like the visual look of the film is nothing like that film, and that's really put into very sharp contrast when they use so much deleted scene footage from Unbreakable. You know you're watching a different movie in those moments. Oh, yeah, absolutely. it, It is very strange. It's so jarring when they do it. It, it really does emphasize how cheap the movie is because you cut from this very crisp, very modern, digital looking movie, and then you cut to something like Unbreakable, which was shot on film, very diffuse looking. The cut makes it look like you've shift channels, and they keep doing this several times over again, and there's no point to even have those scenes in the movie. They're just there to go, hey, do you remember Unbreakable? Do you remember this thing? Here's me blatantly just reusing 19 year old footage to pad out my movie. Yeah, it's like that time we went to the silent disco Todd <laughs> you put the headphones on your head and every time the DJ on one channel is playing something you don't like it just switch to something better <laughs> that was what it felt like we were doing can we at least acknowledge one thing that I thought was good which is Samuel L. Jackson and James McAvoy's performance together oh yeah absolutely I think it's dumb it's very silly but that scene when they're in uh, James McAvoy's room and uh, Samuel L. Jackson just very with all of the meat that he can get under this very stupid line says are 
you ready? And James McAvoy goes, yeah. And it's just really funny. It's just a really great delivery. And I think the two of them, if nothing else, were having a lot of fun. I thought they were having a ball. I don't want to ignore that. I think they really worked in this movie. As much as I disliked a lot of this film, there were parts of it that I was carried through by those performances. But I was also simultaneously frustrated by the way the film used them, especially Jackson. This film is called Glass. You would expect that title character to be the focal point of the movie. He's not even introduced properly until close to the hour mark. And he spends much of the film before that in a catatonic state and with lots of close-ups of his eyes flickering his mouth twitching yeah yeah and he doesn't actually have a line until well past an hour into the movie <laughs> poor samuel jackson yeah why have you got samuel jackson in this movie he's been itching for this movie for 20 years he's been apparently begging Shyamalan to let him play this role again as like okay well you're gonna sit in the chair and twitch so the answer to this is that he was filming like captain marvel or something right like that has to be the reason why let's acknowledge that too i mean i'm not saying that this is a fact if i'm wrong about this i'd be shocked he was filming captain marvel he was filming Spider-Man Far From Home and so there was a huge chunk of time where the man just wasn't available and so they had to make changes to the script and so for the whole first hour it's just him twitching and such. I'm pretty sure of it. It feels like a movie where they're working around people's schedules. A lot of the time the characters are not even interacting with each other. They're just sitting around in their cells. Well yeah, they're they're literally separated. They're in their cells. They don't... I mean, you talk about McAvoy's performance. I liked McAvoy in Split and I liked him here again to a certain extent. Seeing that same act and I mean, it's a little bit diminished by repetition, but even so, it's still really impressive, especially because he's going even further with it, as you said, Todd. At the same time, I think he spends too much of the movie playing Hedwig. (laughs) I got a little bit sick of him talking like a nine-year-old. Yes. Also, what nine-year-old talks that way? There's a scene in here where the uh, place has lights that they can flash at McAvoy to make him switch personalities. Yeah, they stroke. Turn down the threat if he's being threatening. There's a one scene where they just like do it for like five or ten minutes, just like him switching back and forth. On one hand, it's extremely impressive and McAvoy pulls it off very much. On the other hand, it's kind of like listening to someone do a drum solo for ten minutes. It's virtuoso stuff. It's very impressive. This is so McAvoy can show off. It doesn't really serve any purpose. Yeah, it's a real fish concert performance. They do that scene several times over and over. A lot of this movie, the reason that I disliked it so much is it's, okay, we've got these characters together. We've got two decades worth of effort bringing these characters together for this finale, and it's just them sitting around in cells for most of the movie doing nothing. And like brings them together, and then doesn't know what to do with them next. Just nothing happens. Yeah, That's the majority of the movie. For all the the planning, Shaman's been planning to do this for 19 years it's set up at the end of split he did not have any plans for these characters no he's a cylon that's it <laughs> m9 Shyamalan is a cylon he kept saying for seasons that he had a plan he did not and the, the second act of that movie goes on and on and nothing happens I was so bored. So much exposition. And and yet there are things that could have been done. And, you know, I think this is a good opportunity to sort of talk about some of the other characters in the film. Certainly when we came out of it, and Todd, 
I think you should speak to this. The Anya Taylor-Joy stuff. Ugh. This is not her fault. No, it's not. I think that she's a really talented actor. I think she's really talented. I agree. But she is not well served by this movie. And I think that it's in concert with the other main woman character, Dr. Uh, Ellie Staple, played by Sarah Paulson. This is really, of all of the problems that I have with the film, my biggest problem is actually here. Yes. And also this is exacerbated by the fact that I had to watch all of Punisher Season 2 for work, which also features one of the worst therapists in the history of recorded film or television. <laughs> Ellie Staple is the worst therapist. <laughs> I guess we don't know if she actually is a therapist. This is sort of the twist. This is the other thing is the twist is terrible. The stuff with Ellie Staple and the stuff with Casey Cook are just, now that's what I call Yikes Volume 60. Yeah. It's not good. You know, for all the talk that Split and this movie demonize mental illness, they are far too sympathetic to Kevin What's-His-Name and the Horde. They forgot that he abducted this teenage girl and terrorized her because she is very friendly to Kevin and worries about his safety and is, wants him to get better and is like his only friend, really. Yes, they make a big point of it. This is straight-up Stockholm Syndrome. I didn't buy her relationship with Kevin. This is supposed to be a couple of weeks after Split or something like that? Like three weeks after the events of Split and she's running back to Kevin? I thought it was uh, longer than that. Like, she's turned in her uncle. She's living in foster care. Although, for the record, that was my big problem with Split. Like, they just let that plot line just peter out and die. And they just kind of wrap it up on a bow in, like, the first five minutes of her screen time. Anyone who's seen Split more recently than me, do you remember them really forging any bond? No, not really. At least not in that kind of way. In more of a, let's see what I can exploit about him to try and help me escape. Yeah. She didn't learn to care for him. She didn't learn his real name because she was growing Stockholm Syndrome. It's because she was trying to survive. So all their scenes together feel totally false because of it. There's no emotional investment built up from the last movie, and there's no emotional investment built up here. There's this kind of Beauty and the Beast kind of thing, where she's the one that manages to overpower the Beast and get Kevin back in just long enough so that he can be shot, <laughs> and it's supposed to be tragic? Am I supposed to feel sorry for him? The guy that kidnaps young women and eats them? <laughs> and you get the ridiculously drawn-out death scene where he goes through about seven of his different personalities all getting a death scene with each other? It's weird. It's a really weird choice that they made. Yeah. And then, likewise, the... just I mean, I guess we don't know what to make of what are Sarah Paulson's motivations when she says to Casey, Only you can save him. <laughs> really? <laughs> You know, yet earlier in the movie, Casey says, I want to see him. And she goes, you can't. You're the victim. And then five seconds later, <laughs> she's, you know, there are moments when this really feels like a very goofy Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> Even with the color palette, to be honest. Yeah. And the Bruce Willis in them. <laughs> yeah. The entire third act feels like a like Wes Anderson doing a bad, very black superhero movie. Like, she's trying to convince them that they're just imagining that they're superheroes, which I think that is, a, like, a, a real psychosis. I know there's one where everyone's in a reality show. That's a pretty common delusion. So I think this is actually not so far out of left field that she can be, like, a specialist in crazy wannabe superheroes. She's, like, trying to convince them and they're all three of them in the same room being talked to by Sarah Paulson I'm like what kind of therapy is this this is not what group therapy is for it's not yeah I know people who are on group therapy I am in regular type therapy it's not like this it's just really weird 
And also, you know, it's not just, oh, gosh. This character annoyed me beyond belief. She genuinely did. She's awful. And and, and the reason why I, I, again, said the Wes Anderson thing is that there's something very Wes Anderson about he's being drowned to death by the puddle. She goes, no, 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 wait. Did I convince you that you were a regular man? And then they kill him. This is a weird, like, it's a, like that very self-involved Wes Anderson type Royal Tenenbaum kind of character. It's just so singularly bizarre. Why would you do that? Did she expect an answer? Yeah. What was the purpose of that? Yeah. That's just for the audience and nobody else. And it just took me so far out of it. Her character is such a sea of contradictions. Nothing about her makes any sense. Even retroactively, knowing what the twist of the movie is. What's the point exactly of trying to convince them that they're not superheroes so that they don't have to kill them? Yeah. Is that what they were trying to do, essentially? Yes. That's She thinks it'd be more humane if they could just get them to calm down and not use their powers rather than, you know, straight up murdering, which I guess, good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, she was like, listen, you've seen Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> we can't have there be superheroes. Someone's going to snap the world, their yeah. fingers and then... You know, Snapture. The problem with that is that the actual thinking behind it isn't actually psychological. So even if she did convince that they weren't actually superheroes, they'd still have their abilities. You can't cure someone of DID in three days. But I dislike this character mostly because she was so relentlessly expository. She spends so much of this movie talking directly into camera, describing the events of Unbreakable and Split like we hadn't seen those movies before. Like, in a night, people who are watching this movie will have obviously been aware of those films and have likely seen them. Yeah, there might be a little minority of people that are going into this completely blind, but that isn't going to be the case for the most part. Yeah, I don't think a word of mouth is going to attract any new viewers here. Yeah, so why spend so much of this movie explaining things that we've already seen? I don't understand it, other than the fact that obviously it keeps the budget down. And yet, for all those explanations we do get, they just go... Well, you know, they've all got the same tattoo, so... The whole conspiracy plot angle. So no explanation for what this group is or what they're about. She just says, well, we've been doing it for 10,000 years. Doing what? Why a three-leaf clover? Does (laughs) M. Night Shyamalan hate the Irish? What's happening? Yeah, they're just really, really Irish. He has so much time to waste on everything else and yet no time to spend explaining this, the core conceit of the entire thing. Turns out they all went to the same cheap tattoo parlor. <laughs> yeah, I just, there's, you know, there's so many other movies, you know, the David Dunn and his kid protecting people in this sort of way where, you know, his son's sort of like an Oracle kind of character. That's a movie. Whoa, I could watch that. And they're trying to find the split guy. That's a whole. You could. You could make you could. a whole movie about that. That would be pretty entertaining. Or there's an organization that tries to prevent superheroes from manifesting. That's a movie, man. You could make a movie out of that. And yet these are the things that get the absolute least real estate in the film. It's a 130-minute film, which decides that it should shove its plot into the first 20 minutes and the the last last 20 minutes. (laughs) And then everything else is just empty, dead air. I mean, you look on Wikipedia on the plot synopsis, and the middle act of the movie is condensed into one sentence, and half the synopsis takes place in the final 20 minutes of the movie. Admittedly, I will say that, as a rule, any movie that suddenly invokes a sinister cult very late into the proceedings is a very bad film. I mean, you always know you're in trouble when a cult pops up. It felt a little like the end of the Wicker Man remake. Yeah. 
I don't understand why Shyamalan delayed this twist so late into the narrative because if you unveiled it at even the halfway point, suddenly, boom, there's a story. Long swaths of this movie feel like they go on with no kind of narrative objective of where we're we going, what these characters trying to do. There's like a couple weird scenes where both Casey yeah. and Bruce Willis's kid yeah. discover the magic of comic books, and this does not pay off in any way. No. It has nothing to do with anything. They're all padding scenes. They're just to remind you they're still in the movie. <laughs> exactly. What do they think they're going to find out from comic books? They're written by hacks. You know, heroes have always existed and it filters down to comic books. It's like, yeah, but you know what comic books are. Like, you're not going to learn anything you don't already know. You're just going to find out the origin of, like, Hammerhead Man. It's 2019. <laughs> People know what yeah. comic books are. <laughs> and this is to speak nothing of the final victory of Mr. Glass. Yeah. Victory. That he's tricked them all into releasing the Snyder Cut. <laughs> <laughs> That, yeah, he's, that, that all of the footage of them fighting at the end of the film has been released, and now, you know, our three surviving characters have cut it together and put it out on YouTube, and now everyone's going to watch it and see. See what exactly? What probably people are going to say is, wow, <laughs> this is a really good independent movie that someone up uploaded to YouTube. They ought to make a Cloverfield movie, whoever this is. The secret cult doesn't know how to use a DMCA notice, apparently. Yeah, it's so, it is singularly bizarre. <laughs> Also, they're in a train station because you get it because Mr. Oh, Glass oh. with the trains and he changed things with the train. And and by the way, can we all believe the fact that Kevin's father was on the same train? Why? Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. That's twist. Yeah. And I hate to call it a twist because I think it was pretty heavily foreshadowed beforehand. And even if it wasn't, I think that was the easiest, laziest way of shoehorning these films together. I just watched Todd put his uh, his hood over his face. That was one of the times. I love the shot where they transition between the new footage and the old footage. Yeah. You can actually see the shift in the footage. Oh, here's standard license. Diffuse. <laughs> just, just in the space. Bruce Willis can't act suddenly he can yeah you can basically see the scissor cuts and tape yeah it's rough but yeah i mean just the, the, the whole ending all i could think was as they reached the point in which everybody is starting to look on their phones and then within an instant somehow it's on the news yeah, yeah. but you know what else also was really popular that baby shark song <laughs> <laughs> that was why when i went on and my my uh my spoiler for this movie was mr glass do 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 you know like it's yeah. just how is it more meaningful in the 20 24-hour news cycle. People are going to forget about this by the next day. Yeah. In what year is this set that this would work? If it's set now, then no. Todd, you've experienced this, right? You've sat in a train station after you've released one of your videos and seen people <laughs> Everyone's watching to it. <laughs> Even if you accepted that's real footage that you're looking at on your phone, nothing in it is all that impressive. It's a guy flipping a car. I guess the one of Bruce Willis bending the bar, maybe. Looks like some pretty decent practical effects to me. Yeah. The end. You got James McAvoy running around on all fours. That looked real stupid. But, like, there's no eye lasers. There's no one controlling the weather, controlling fire or anything like that. I would believe, as Sarah Paulson tries to convince people, it's like, these are just strong men. Yeah. And apparently this is their destiny. 
Destiny. David Dunn's Destiny was apparently not to live long enough to become a viral sensation because he drowned in a fucking puddle. <laughs> Sorry, I keep going back to that, but really, that was like the absolute lowest point of, oh, nope, 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 nope. And then the ending rolls around, which is basically, here's a tease for unbreakable sequels, but we don't have to bring back the actors that we clearly spent most of the budget for this movie for. You know what? I really don't want to see those movies because they'll just basically be unbreakable again. I don't want to see more movies in this universe. We're done. We're finito <laughs> on it. I don't care anymore. You've killed off all the characters in stupid, nonsensical ways. Yes, you made unbreakable puddleable. Yes. It, it feels like to me that unbreakable is not really about superheroes. It's about these two guys finding their place in the narrative. Yeah, exactly. It's them finding their sense of being, essentially. And they basically repeat that here. That doesn't need a sequel. I didn't leave Unbreakable thinking, I wonder what adventures David Dunn is going to get into next. It was a self-contained little thing. And Split is, for the most part. I mean, the tag at the end of Split, if you took that out, yeah, it's a self-contained movie. So, like, this is a bad idea just on its core. There was never any way this was going to be good. At the very least, it was never going to be a good Unbreakable sequel, because there is no good Unbreakable sequel. Just as there wouldn't be a good Split sequel, and here we are. This movie feels like a first draft. It does. It feels like an asylum movie. Like they churn it out as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. The big plot is to, you know, I'm going to go to Osaka Tower and I'm going to blow it up. A true marvel. Did you see that on the magazine? They keep yeah. showing that. Yes. Wink. Ugh. Wink. Yeah, it's like Philadelphia built their own Freedom Tower for some reason and they're going to go blow it up. It already has like a working chemical lab in it during its grand opening and they do not ever reach the fireworks factory. Why is it called Osaka Tower, by the way? Is it just a diehard reference? I think so. Is that really what we're doing? A Japanese name tower? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go with that, honestly. I think it's meant to be some sort of reference to something, but goodness knows what. I didn't care, quite frankly, because we never actually get there. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just basically a CGI skyline. <laughs> yeah, like, this movie is so ugly looking. It really is. I was astonished, actually, at how cheap this movie is, especially because this movie has a $20 million budget. It's a higher budget than Split, and yet it looks way worse aesthetically. It's all going to Bruce Willis's pocket, like all the extra money. It's <laughs> Yeah, I think they only spent about $5 million on the actual movie. I think everything else went to Sam Jackson and, and Bruce Willis. I genuinely was watching it going, this feels like a direct-to-video sequel. I've seen movies that are almost set entirely in one institutional setting or a hospital or something like that, and they all look like this, except even those would probably try to give a little bit more atmosphere than a lot of the flat photography in this film. It looks like they just planted a camera and it looks kind of cold and sterile and that's about it. There's no personality. Especially in the final action scene which looked like fucking garbage. It looked awful. Like, M.I. Shyamalan, as he proved during After Earth and Last Airbender is not an action director. He cannot shoot action scenes. He is absolutely terrible at them. He was kind of broken when he said, oh, you know what the best place to set the dramatic finale to my trilogy is? A car park. <laughs> we spent the last 20 minutes of the movie largely in a car park with people throwing each other around. He definitely didn't say that. He said parking lot. He's American. Come on. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. Got him. But yeah, you know, a lot of people do good work with one location. Like if you gave it to a, like a Thai West or something, he could do something with, you know, a parking lot and the inside of that building and 
Shyamalan just didn't do it. It's a very unvisual movie. The climax of this film, I love that people were complaining about something like Civil War, where they had the big fight on the airstrip. Oh, you shot in broad daylight. Well, at least they've actually made use of the characters. At least it's actually a competently shot action sequence. You don't get that here, and the institutional setting is so barren in that it doesn't feel plausible. Not only going back to the fact that you've got these individual cells set up for these characters because they apparently knew they were going to capture them that particular day. You know, we just sprang to add a water tank onto this cell. <laughs> Virtually no employees. And there seems to be no other patients in there. The only time they do anything dynamic with it outside of David and Kevin's cells is when they paint a room bright pink. Yeah. Ugh. Another thing that made me think that it was a Wes Anderson movie for a minute. It's this massive building and yet on the inside it appears to be about three or four different rooms. There's no sense of space or geography about anything that's happening on screen. It was very visibly Shyamalan regressing as a director. Yeah. He's proved that he can do this stuff even on a budget. So what the hell is happening here? Why is this movie so just nothing? Even like a lot of the really bad movies that people don't like, like The Happening or The Village, they have a beginning and a middle and an end. They get to where they're going. The one that doesn't have it is Lady in the Water, which is extremely half-assed storytelling-wise. And that's what this one reminded me of. And that's a really bad thing, because that's Shyamalan's worst movie. Although, nothing's ever going to be that bad, so he's not going to hit those depths ever again. Uh, why would you even... <laughs> why even say such a thing out loud? Don't tease. Don't tease, Todd. <laughs> We've been talking about this for a little bit. Matthew, you wanted to sort of maybe come up with movies that people could watch instead of this. Uh, unbreakable easily. <laughs> yeah. In terms of doing the themes and ideas that this movie has, I would definitely argue that this movie is just a rehash of everything that Shyamalan did 19 years earlier and far better, quite frankly. If we're talking about Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson movies, watch any of them, like Die Hard with a Vengeance or Pulp Fiction. And even when it comes to Shyamalan movies, I would say that Splits is better to watch instead of this one as well. Any of them. <laughs> I would even recommend watching The Happening. I mean, I know that movie's bad. It's so bad. It's funny. This bored me to tears. And I was infuriated after the ending because I felt like I'd wasted my time. Now, I didn't have very good poker face. I know this because I walked out of the cinema and they were handing out cards, like character cards. And I got one, but I get the impression that my face looked like smacked ass at that particular moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they tried to get us to review the movie too, didn't they? Oh yeah, there were people there with like uh, cards, like exit survey cards. Like, what'd you think of the movie? If I hadn't been with you, I would have stuck around and spent a few minutes sending my words directly to M. Night Shyamalan. You had the look on your face that said, I have time for this. <laughs> and I said, no. Um, do you have any movies that you would uh, recommend instead of seeing this one, Todd? We've already talked about the, the people involved. And I'm trying to think, like, what is a good version of this? And I can't think of one because this isn't really a movie. I can't tell what it was trying to do, so I can't tell you what a good version of that would be. I don't know. Go see Ghost Dog. Wow. Ghost Dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
apparently Shyamalan said that one of his influences on this film was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So maybe watch that instead. <laughs> it was actually on my on my list, but two films that I would probably tell people to watch. If you want to see a good bottle movie that is a sequel to a movie that it is in fact in no way truly connected to, I think 10 Cloverfield Lane, probably the way to go. Yes. And the other one, if you are looking for people that have powers and struggle with whether or not they're going to use them for good or for ill and it's a lower budget, then I would say Colossal is maybe a good one. Ooh, I didn't really think about that. But yeah, that's another case of taking big fantastical genre piece, in that case monster movies, and trying to do it in a really kind of ground way where it speaks more about the characters, more than big spectacle. That's actually a really good pick, Danny. Yeah, I think either of those are way better than Glass. It's unfortunate because I don't think there is a lot of movies like Unbreakable. And I really genuinely hoped that, okay, maybe M. Night has gone over this rough patch and then he comes back and he proves to us, no, he hasn't. He really hasn't. He is infuriatingly inconsistent as ever. He needs to be in a band, man. He's not a solo act. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, he does need someone on his shoulder going, okay, this idea does not work. You think this is really brilliant genius work? Well, I'm here to tell you, that bubble's gonna burst. You forgot to write a second act. Yeah. Write a second draft. Oh, man. Well, that was glass. <laughs> yes. So... Todd, where can people find you? On YouTube as Todd in the Shadows. And Danny, where can people find you? Uh, you can find my content at sci-fi.com. And if you want to find me on social media, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Danny Ordinary. That is Danny with one N, Ordinary also with one N. Hey, Danny, didn't we do a podcast the other before? Something called Everyday Horror? We did. Didn't we talk about Better Watch Out? Uh, we did talk about Better Watch Out. Everyday Horror is something that you can find on iTunes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at FB underscore BMB, on Facebook at Filmbrain Reviews. You can find me on YouTube at Filmbrain. Uh, you can find me on Tumblr at Filmbrain BMB. And also, you can now find this podcast on various podcasting sites like iTunes, Stitcher, and so on and so forth. So if you have a favourite provider, it's probably there now. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you haven't got too angry if you like the movie. I know that a lot of people on Twitter have told me, oh, I actually liked it. Fine, you don't have to agree with any of our opinions. But until next time, I'm Matthew Buck, fading out. Thank you for listening to the Film Brain Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if you want to support my work, be it podcasts or YouTube videos, please go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash filmbrain where you can experience those episodes early, among other perks. And just a quick shout out to my Patreons, Tim Poppleton, SoFox, Inigo Almandos, Tim Tark, G Viral, Robert Murray, Henry Jacob, Anoria Hack, Manuel Jonan, Marley Berrickmans, Joshua Bowden. And remember, if you have any feedback about the show over social media, please use the hashtag FilmBrainPodcast.